0: So uh, we're doing something a little different this time. Um, We had a show that we recorded and I have with me one of the guests that was on the show, but we're adding a little prologue because in retrospect, I think we didn't properly contextualize (laughs) what we were talking about. We just jumped straight into the topic and I thought it would be good to have uh, one of our guests back on just to kind of properly contextualize what was coming up and also to uh, explain more of what she does and how it relates to the topic. So we have with us Courtney K. Rawlings, if you'll introduce yourself, <laughs> tell people how to contact you and what you do.
1: I love that I got the full name introduction, uh, Courtney K. Yeah, yeah, why not? Yeah, I, I'm leaning into it. Um, yeah, my name is Courtney K. Rawlings. Um, no, I'll go Courtney K. Rawlings. That's fun. Um, I'm a PhD student or a PhD candidate at um, Emory. You're going to hear me say this in like two seconds. At Emory University, and I'm studying art history, but I'm also the co chair of our grad union um, turned academic union, Emory Unite. Um, and I think last time uh, we were recording pretty late and we were just like all really excited and slash kind of out of it. So we jumped right into the topic as if everyone cares or knows anything about. Um, academic labor or you know what's trending in academic labor.
0: one thing too i mean sometimes like we worry about things and people are like oh no i totally grasped the context you know pretty fine or sometimes you don't worry about things and then people will <laughs> write you back and be like oh my god like that made <laughs> that made no sense to me so if you listen to the actual thing and you realize hey i got this just fine these dummies were worried about nothing well hey we hope it has value in its own right. So yeah. don't, you know, appreciate this. Don't don't bother us. Don't be, don't be pedantic <laughs> and, and write us anything. But Oh,
1: wait, I forgot. I've never said my Twitter and I want to um, be as popular as UT. Um, oh,
0: no, no. It's, it's overrated. But go ahead. It's, it's your call. No,
1: just kidding. <laughs> Um, I don't it's at at underscore underscore acadame that's a c a d a m e no I don't think I could deal with with your amount of um followers that would like give me anxiety
0: you know you know what's weird is I was thinking about this the other day because I'm always trying to wean myself off of Twitter and I think I've been doing like a decent job Mm. I I don't go I don't go on as much as I used to if I do it's just for dumb jokes I try not to
1: (laughs) That's what it should be sti-
0: for, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because um, people are just too pedantic and bad faith and stuff. Yeah. But I think I find it interesting when you're in your worst level of when you when you're in your worst level of Twitter like addiction and stuff, right? You know it's bad when you're not actually enjoying, you know, all the dumb responses you get to everything, but you're still trying to get your tweets like, retweeted as much as possible and build <laughs> your followers. And you know, you're thinking, I'm at the point where I have no enjoyment like like my popularity has gone past the point where I enjoy the replies I get why am I still trying to get more people so I can deal with more of this and and to me that's how you know it's like a weird addiction like so to me like the sweet spot was like between 2,000 or to 3,000 that's that's enough you actually start getting replies to questions you ask and stuff like that but you don't get, like, a ton of bad-faith trolls. So I'm, <laughs> so I'm telling you, don't... don't. Be I really don't think too... I
1: could deal with trolls either. I'm too sensitive, even without trolls.
0: Well, one or two things happen. You either get a thick skin to it, which makes you even worse, because then you become one of those weirdos who just, like, leans into the trolling. Yeah. Or, you know, you never get over it, and then you're in a constant state of uh, anxiety over tweeting. So, yeah, I mean...
1: <laughs> I think oh, my, well, my problem with Twitter is less, like, an obsession with getting followers or something like that. It's more that I check it like incessantly. Like I can't even look at my phone to check the weather without first checking Twitter like five times. Well yeah
0: that's, very that's, weird. That's the worst thing. It's like, well it's called random reinforcement or intermittent rewards. It comes out of uh behaviorism and it works the same way as a slot machine. Like they said oh well they call it reinforcement schedules in uh behaviorism. It's the work is by this guy BF Skinner. And what they found out is if you give people predictable rewards or predictable lack of rewards they just adjust accordingly like if you give them too many rewards predictably then they'll just kind of uh back off because they're like okay i can just get rewards whenever i want (laughs) or if you give them too little rewards they kind of either ramp up accordingly or ramp down because they'll be like okay you know what this is a waste of time I I get way too little rewards for the work I'm putting into it, but they found out if you reward people randomly, you know, like they do the same thing like five times, but one time for no particular reason, they hit a payoff. Then they will keep chasing that reward constantly because they don't know when it's coming and this time might be the right time. So that's how slot machines work. That's why slot machines are the most addictive thing in a or or all the best gambling things are work on random reinforcement cuz like you know people will be pulling on a slot machine arm yeah. and and they'll be like, okay, the last 50 times didn't work, but this one might be the one time. Yeah. And that's random reinforcement. And then when it does hit, that's enough to power you through the next 60 or so um, attempts. But if like, it was predictably one out of five times and people would just, you know, be like, oh, I'll just do this amount of times today. And I'll do triple tomorrow if I want triple the results. And And social media, like designers, they know this. They design it to be as addictive as possible. They've had people who work for social media, who used to work for it, like admit this, like say one of the reasons why I left was because I don't like the fact that we were addicting people. Yeah. But, yeah. They have schedules about what's the that's optimum so- amount of reward that sh- people should get or whatever. So that's what you're feeling when you check checking in. Uh, well, I get firstly. all
1: flavors of reward. That's how we met. That's like been the most exciting yeah. thing about Twitter. <laughs> it's yeah, like the yeah, weird exactly. friends that you make through this like bizarre internet forum but
0: also like the weird thing where you'll make one tweet that's the same like have you ever had a tweet that you think is as dumb as any other tweet you did and for some reason that's the one that goes over
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) definitely yeah
0: yeah yeah and then you're like wow this might happen again maybe maybe i'll make another dumb tweet and that one's gonna have the same thing happen And then you know you never predict when it's gonna happen it, it really is random not so weird yeah yeah but but anyway that's <laughs> yeah that was
1: that was like so many minutes of us just going off topic again yeah,
0: yeah but you know that's our brand so I just, I just lean it that's why i it tune in yeah yeah exactly anyway down to business <laughs> yeah uh, yeah we should first start it, is what was uh, daniel's piece about broad in a in a broad sense and what was it about to you given what you do? Like you know, you know like what was it to different people?
1: Yeah, so we definitely jumped straight into this last time. Dr. Daniel Besner, he's a professor at uh, University of Washington. I think he's in history or something about I don't I don't remember his department, but he's wonderful. So he wrote this great piece for the Chronicle of Higher Ed. Hopefully that's right. Where he's kind of like he and, and another author actually whose name I don't have, you no know, written down, but he and another author are kind of arguing, like, look, we as tenured professors and we as historians in general, he's talking to like the kind of society that historians belong to. It's like the American Historical Association.
0: Quick thing, uh, mm-hmm. just so, just to address what you said, the other author, we might have mentioned it in the main episode, but the other author is Michael Brennis or Breens, It's spelled mm. B R E N E S. I'm not sure if it's Brennis or greens but he is the other author and to fill in the gap about what you weren't sure about daniel works on intellectual and cultural history U.S. foreign relations, the history of democratic thought, and the history of social sciences. But I believe in general, in a broad sense, he considers himself a historian.
1: Right, right. Um, That's like his specialty. So, yeah, he's kind of writing, I think it's right after he got tenured is what he told us, writing to his kind of broader community of historians, especially tenured historians, and especially people in power saying, there's this huge and and pressing jobs crisis and we need to kind of take responsibility for that. We need to be Driving the unionization efforts for that, and we need to make sure that we take the correct moves to kind of reverse this job situation, right? So, you know, one of the things he calls for is like, look, the American Historical Association needs to claim responsibility. I think I just said that, right? It's, it needs to be responsible, but it also needs to, you know, be incredibly open with with how the jobs situation is. Like, you know, post, you know, how many historians are getting what kinds of jobs. Yeah. So anyways, it's kind of like this, like, very, I thought, pretty straightforward. <laughs> uh, you know, really short. It's like two pages. And um, it, seems, it
0: seems like stuff is hard to argue with. or takes, Oh, my God. A, yeah. A, a, it should a, be a completely poster. hard to argue with.
1: Yeah. I thought it was, like, incredibly, like, um, people acted like he was asking for revolution or something like this. He's like... No, I just think we should like probably um, not exploit uh, workers and we shouldn't I mean, certainly shouldn't be accepting graduate students into historic history programs if we don't plan on hiring them.
0: I, I mean, sadly, in a neoliberal world, that is kind of revolutionary what he was oh, asking sad. for. I mean, it's kind of a sign of how far we've fallen. Yeah. Uh, that, that that becomes something so revolutionary to ask for things so basic. Right. You know? Yeah. Because it would cause, it, you know, you know, what the, the backlash kind of reminded me of. Mm -hmm. You know you know that whole okay boomer thing where people (laughs) are just poking fun at little boomer foibles and boomers are like really going Uh, crazy even like celebrity boomers are going online and like acting really defensive and it's like god you guys got the best of everything why let people have this little thing that they have which is the ability to complain and agitate for stuff like but people act like they're the beleaguered ones and that's kind of what was happening in response to daniel's piece a lot of people were acting very personally attacked by particularly the aha they're acting like the aha was being attacked and it's like you guys are like the big dogs the most secure people if anyone should be able to Have a thick skin, or (laughs) I know, whatever. Should be, should be you guys. You guys got it made, you guys won the um lottery the game of life you know
1: i want to find my notes really quick because the responses were yeah absolutely crazy and we didn't understand i don't think i remember us having time to kind of talk about the responses no it was kind of weird
0: because well this is the one thing with preparing for podcasts in general is you try to well you know (laughs) on movie scripts and stuff it's like an easy rule like one page is one minute but with podcasts you never know like you don't know how many questions equals how much time so we weren't even really able to delve into a lot of stuff because the stuff that we got into that episode had so much meat on the bone, you know, that we uh, we went like almost two hours when and there was like so much more we could have gone into, including what you said, the whole discourse around the piece.
1: Yeah, um, I can't find my notes, but oh wait, there they are. Sorry, right when I say that. Yeah, so some of the, I mean, this is really part for the course. And I think, you know, what's so interesting about talking about academic labor right now is that it's really representative of exploitative labor happening across the country, right? So, and this is exactly what, you know, your bosses will respond, right? So we had someone, I mean, I thought these were so funny, like there's a response from Grossman, his were kind of my favorite, right? So,
0: yeah James James Grossman, and his was called "How Not to Confront the Jobs Crisis." Scholarly associations don't have magic wands.
1: His kind of response, I thought, was, was really one of my favorite. You know, I've heard this from countless. You know, bureaucrats at Emory, for instance, they always say, look, change takes time. You know, in the meantime, let's change the culture. We'll be much nicer to each other. But also, you know, we need to be really realistic. Right. And, and that's a huge scare word that you'll hear bosses across the country um, tell and you, like, we need to be realistic. And
0: that's something that happens with the whole neoliberal and centrist and, and liberal centrist, too, just in general, is like those two things, incrementalism and civility. You know, that's something that comes up <laughs> yeah. a lot in, in politics with, with liberals and centrists and, and boomers. And that's something that you can transfer to other things like this topic, which is what the Grossman guys seem to be doing. It's like, you know, focus on treating each other nicer and being civil and, you know, being less agitated. I know agitated is, is not a word. Non-words are
1: the bread and butter of academia.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and let's... Uh, Change takes time and right. and, and you know it's funny you know it's funny right a lot of I used to think I had trouble with the idea of incrementalism or incrementalism was like a, a joke, but what I realized now is incrementalism is not actually a bad thing because it's just it's just that what people call incrementalism actually is just an excuse for doing nothing because um the right wings is actually like practicing actual incrementalism and it works like <laughs> right. like like what the right does with like say abortion right now reproductive rights or all these other things the right wing is gradually been doing incrementalism working on infiltrating the supreme court working on clawing back different things a little bit at a time like right now with immigration female reproductive rights and things mm-hmm. like that the right wing is doing a great ground game ground game on incrementalism like they're actually like the right wing talks radical like revolution tea party stuff but it mm-hmm. actually does incrementalism whereas the left or academia or, or neoliberal institutions talk incrementalism but actually really want to do nothing and, you know and uh and yeah incrementalism is what i got from grossman's paper
1: yeah and i actually think i think you're right on all accounts right there right so um i'll just say miller says pretty much the same thing and and
0: and and let's say who miller is yeah sorry i didn't open this this will all be in the show notes which is available to uh patrons so you can rush and write down all these things now as a listener or you can subscribe for five dollars a month 17
1: cents a day baby
0: yes exactly (laughs) patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks and all this stuff be in the links and then some, but uh, yeah, Miller. Miller is Allison Miller, right? Yeah, That's sure. That's the name. Yeah.
1: Sorry, I, I just wrote down their last names in my notes.
0: It's all good. Oh, and there's one more thing. Um, yeah,
1: I didn't. I don't. I don't have notes on that one for some reason. And Chronicle
0: also uh, had something that was letter to the editor that said, "Attack on the AHA could not be more wrong," and that was <laughs> right. by. Joy Connolly, interim mm-hmm. president of the Graduate Center at CUNY. Yeah. So yeah, there's actually three responses. One was a letter to the editor and the other two were articles.
1: I mean they all kind of say the same thing and that's like what what I thought, you know, your comments about the right wing are, are, are perfect because what liberals love to do is go to the table already planning to negotiate, right? Um, Or like already having negotiated uh, what they want, right? So they'll go, oh, look, you know, we want women's rights or something. But the liberal go to the table being like, well, I'm willing, you know, to negotiate rather than really standing up for what needs to happen rather than having like, no, like women should have right to choose or whatever, you know, whatever their kind of stance is going to be. And this is what bosses will do to you. And this is why libs are, you know, just perfect workers is someone's gonna tell you to be realistic. Someone's gonna say, We, you know, we don't have the power to change it. It's always gonna be the person in charge. And you have to go, um, I don't care if you don't have the power to change it, right? It needs to change because it's morally like repugnant that you're exploiting people, right? So, and actually Miller does this. She goes, Look, you know, this exploitative labor market didn't happen because anyone made specific decisions, right? As if this like magic hand, like, you know the market is just there, like coolly making these decisions for us. No, people made these decisions, and we need to hold the institution that represents those decisions responsible. Right?
0: Yeah, and this this is where being being a a white woman uh, helps you because you probably you probably naturally have that. Uh, let me speak to your manager energy, and, <laughs> and that's and that's what we need in this situation, which is like you know people say we don't have the uh, power to change this. And it's like, well, if you don't have the power, direct me to who does have the power, you know? And, and this is like a moment where, you know, let me speak to your manager is Actually, the right response to something like like if you somehow at the AHA do not have the power, then then who does? And right. if, and if no one does, then why not? Like somebody has to be the quote unquote manager here. And, right. I and think it, that's what's
1: fun. yeah. It's it's what's hard. And I you know I definitely developed this energy when I first joined the union. I remember I think it was like two days later. The then kind of like figurehead of the union was like, hey, can you go on the radio? <laughs> And I was like, "Oh, okay." Um, and like for the first time ever, you know, not even really knowing what a union was, I was like on this radio's uh, uh, interview, just like yelling about how we're being like. Uh, exploited in the same ways that we see workers across this country being exploited. What is, of course, different um, is that cause graduate students, for instance, aren't considered employees. (laughs) It's really hard to fire us, so it can be like a lot more militant. But like, I remember when our food service workers at Emory, you know, this has happened twice now, actually. but Most recently, the food service workers at Emory were trying to unionize and their bosses came with like, look, we can't make these changes all at once. You kind of push us into this corner, then we're not gonna be able to treat you the same way. You remember that one time where we let you go from this kind of hairnet to this like kind of sexier kind of hairnet, that was because we were friends, right? And that is exactly what these institutions are gonna try and do to you. So when Bester, and sorry, what was his co-writer's name?
0: Um, Michael Brennis, I believe. Let me make sure. Yes, Michael Brenniss. Yes. So when
1: Bezner and Brezner, Brennis, um kind of pulled the AHA, you know, some institutional body that does have power responsible, the AHA is going to do the same thing those bosses talking to the workers at Emory did, right? They're going to go, you know we kind of want to represent your interests and we want to be your friends and we want to make sure that we like can adequately do our jobs. But if you're antagonistic to us, if you, if you hold us responsible for any of the decisions and information that we put out there, you know, that's going to mean that like, we are going to have to be antagonistic towards you. And it's like, what, that, that is such a bizarre response. And on first hear, right. You go like when you first hear something like that, you go, okay, like, Sorry for being mean to you, but that's like also crazy. Yeah. Um, you didn't even ask for anything except for like, maybe we should do something kind of nice.
0: But you know, that's kind of like uh, Stockholm syndrome. Stockholm, yeah. syndrome is, Stockholm syndrome is when you get so used to getting shafted that just getting the normal basic treatment, you start feeling grateful for, you know? And uh, I think that's what institutions now really condition us to do. Like to just get used to treating basic decency like a gift.
1: Oh, my God. Absolutely. It's yeah, yeah, pretty embarrassing.
0: Topic. <laughs> yeah, I could, I could go on and on oh, about that one.
1: I was, I was talking to the YDSA like a few days ago. Sorry I interrupted you. I was talking to the YDSA yesterday and they wanted me to talk. Or a few days ago. And they wanted me to talk about um.
0: Can you like explain unions? what the YDSA is for people who don't know?
1: Oh, the Young Democratic Socialists of America. So it's like uh, the college cohort or whatever, the college section of the DSA. So it's like when you're organizing on a campus, um, you can join the YDSA. And they great. I had no idea Emory would have something like that. And they invited me to come talk. And I was just like... I really want to start giving talks just about like why your boss sucks. Um because that is really what you learn <laughs> while you're organizing. It's always the same old thing.
0: And it's true because well I think it's actually getting pushed back against now but uh I think especially for Gen Xers like I think we were the most conditioned to comply generation in a while and stuff. So it's like I think under our time was when bad treatment by employers got most normalized mm. was during gen x times you know where it's like uh
1: it's kind of what like every movie is about right in that era
0: oh, <laughs> oh yeah yeah ex- exactly things things like nine to five and mm-hmm. um movies that were coming out at that time was a secret to my success all this stuff was about like learn to navigate the workplace. I mean, look at the office, office space. I mean, yeah, G- Gen X, I feel really uh, kind of just treated it like it's just it was just normalized abuse, you know, right. and and you just kind of...
1: Even uh, like the beginning of The Matrix or something, like uh, everything has to do with like the banal, boring, like I'm being exploited, but oh, wow. Well.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, like, uh, <laughs> what, what, what are you going to do, you know, that, that type of... <laughs> It, you know what it makes me feel like the the Flintstones show where the animals um <laughs> are like it's a living you yeah. know like uh that's, oh my god
1: that's so good yeah
0: yeah that's Aww. what I feel like bro that's what I feel like you know Gen X is kind of internalized about work like this is just what it is you know it's a living but but yeah and I feel like I feel like millennials and younger at least were more willing. Like, like, they get a lot of grief for, you know, being un- unmanageable or so-and-so. But, you know, I think sometimes people should get grief for being too manageable.
1: Right. You know, we we didn't plan on talking about organizing. But I think you, again, bring up a really good point because the first people actually who are going to tell you that you're going too far, that maybe we do need to take incremental change, those are often going to be your own coworkers, so no millennial or otherwise. So um, I remember when I first started organizing, I was like, is this, like, am I doing the right thing? Because a lot of people think unions are terrifying. That I'm going too far, and we—I think we gestured to this problem um, during the longer episode. There are, you know, really, it's not going to work with your boss because you know the boss has a vested interest in keeping you exploited, or whatever. But with your coworkers, there's—it can be scary because you're asking people to take a risk, right? Um, you're asking someone to be like, "Hey, look, our lives can be better. We can go with the—we can go to the table negotiating with like the best possible world." as what, what we're asking for, right? You we don't wanna ask for fifty percent employment after grad school, you want to ask for a hundred percent employment, um, and then we might negotiate after that. But we don't go to the table thinking we're going to negotiate. But anyways, so you're talking uh, to your coworker. Yeah. Sorry, no, 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 you, you go.
0: <laughs> no, no, I'm pretty sure you were saying. I didn't realize you're still going. Go on. <laughs> Sorry, you're, you're, you're saying, I got, I got semi-distracted from my own. No, <laughs> no, no. You were saying you talk to your coworker, and then what happens?
1: All right, so I'd say, like in grad school, this it happens all the time. Someone goes, you know, I'm scared. I'm, you know, worried that people are gonna take, uh, what, is he, what do you say? Like uh, they're going to fire me, like are they gonna take actions against me? You
0: know? uh, uh, retaliation.
1: Retaliation, sorry, thank you. That, you know, retaliation will take it against me. And I, I think in grad school, as a um, adjunct worker, wherever your workplace is, um, as a food service worker, one of the greatest tools you kind of have as an organizer is that like they can take retaliation against you right now for absolutely no reason. You might as well, like we already don't have those kinds of protections. Um, as no, workers
0: no it's so tr- it's so true like uh I remember one time I started a job and one of the first things the person said we were starting with a group and the person said yeah you know we uh picked everybody it, it was one of those things like like in those college movies like about law school like paper chase and stuff where the person says mm-hmm. uh you were selected to be here and you could be unselected you know and right like, yeah, yeah yeah but the person the first day was like yeah you know we picked all of you. We can." unpick you it's like who doesn't know they could be fired like like why is that?
1: yeah
0: why is that necessary like like why do you have to like parade that around it's so like like this normalized ritualized abuse that is what employment has become more and more it's like it's like ritual abuse and normalized abuse and lots of stockholm syndrome and what i wanted to say is this is something that i criticize a lot but i might get accused of actually being a hypocrite and doing it here but i think what you said about co-workers is similar to like slavery and slave plantations and i know like it sounds like oh don't (laughs) trivialize slavery by comparing it to work especially like tenured work but what i mean is uh, this is lady caitlin rosenthal we've discussed her work before on the show she's actually someone I actually want to get on the show but she wrote a book accounting for slavery masters and management right and then she also uh and we're gonna put this stuff in the show notes as well she also wrote a paper before that the book is an expansion of the paper but the the paper is called slavery scientific management and she makes this convincing case that modern management as we know it is derived from slavery and it's called scientific management like the idea of like testing things like right sometimes it's called
1: taylorism
0: oh yeah yeah they call it they call it that as as well i think she might even have mentioned that yeah yeah she actually uh mentions it uh frederick winslow taylor who had published his magnum opus the principles of scientific management uh taylorism good good job see that people she's a phd candidate (laughs) but 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 yeah, terrorism, exactly. Terrorism was, a lot of it was taken from slavery and managing plantations and getting the most, how do overseers manage the slaves and getting the most, getting the most productive results out of different slaves as far as quota and having like cotton quarters and stuff like that and you know like i know the stakes are very different everything is and no one's saying that the modern workplace is as bad as slavery like like just get out the way no one is saying that but a lot of the same things about how if you wanted to have some kind of agitation on a, a slave plantation like a whole lot of the revolts and revolutions were the one of the biggest uh obstacles was other slaves who were like we don't want retaliation and like a large portion of slave rebellions were undone by other slaves and you know like what you're talking about is like a more benign refined version of of that you know it's like a it's it's true history like you know it be your own people you know in the words of a famous rap song you know
1: I think you know this is definitely the hardest part about you know, starting a union, organizing. Is you are inevitably going to come up against coworkers who just do not see the world the same as you. But what I've found more and more, um, especially when you're talking about adjunct labor, but also, um,
0: well, I can say who don't see the world as you, or who do see it as you, but can tolerate it.
1: Wow. That's a, yeah. I don't actually know because like, I can't imagine someone like viewing the world the same way and then being like, anyways, this is like totally chill. I I honestly don't think that grad students, a majority of grad students know the statistics because our departments are not telling us, right? They want us to hold out that hope that we're going to get a tenure track job. But I also think, you know, it's very possible that these departments don't understand or don't believe the statistics right
0: um or want to be willfully uh ignorant as we've seen in the responses of daniel's piece
1: absolutely i mean this is why i as people here, i like really harp on this thing about responsibility and i think that's what pesner's doing as well it's you can avoid responsibility if you're willfully ignorant right if you and and, and sometimes it's not willful it's like a, a pathological avoidance and it's that pathological avoidance that you are. And I don't mean that like totally negatively, right? That's how you save yourself from uh, living oh, an yeah. exploited life, right? You...
0: Oh yeah, and and it's a legitimate response to trauma. Absolutely, people don't kind of think of like we we actually talking about this before, but the idea of, of micro trauma, like mm-hmm. there's certain things people you can't uh, deny a trauma, like an attempted rape, an attempted murder, a mugging. Like everyone understands consciously. And without shame, like what I just experienced was a trauma, you know, but there's a lot of like micro trauma that, you know, people feel like, oh, you know, sack up, man up or whatever, being an adult and take this. And we don't really think of it as like micro trauma, but like a bad workplace or a bad precarious career or working condition, that's like slow burn micro trauma, uh, accumulated There's a better way to put this, but it's escaping me because I'm not a morning person. It's early, (laughs) but but yeah, yeah. There's like this accumulated, like low-level trauma that happens from that, and just like other trauma, you know, we kind of mentally protect ourselves by not accepting the full impact or not, not recognizing the full impact of what we're what we went through and are going through
1: absolutely like the you know is it like on twitter you call it like red pilling is that what it's called or black or well, whatever oh, oh um, no no
0: no no i think it's called well red pilling is like uh and that's not the matrix slash Addison wonderland <laughs> anal- analogy where it's like you kind of wake up to what you've been undergoing black pilling is something Even worse. And that's what a lot of those that's what a lot of those incels and other types of people go through. Where where a black pill is, it's a I think opium and different types of poisons used to be black. And uh, a black pill is something that's uh, intended to kill the person who uh, digests it so wow. that's like uh an extra nefarious or fatalist version of the red pill like 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 that's when you kind of realize like you know what what's the point of a red pill because like, like, like the red pill at least has a kind of fake empowerment to it like you know it's like the matrix like i'm gonna take the red pill and i'm gonna wake up and i'm gonna now master this domain like neo like black pills like okay <laughs> uh i've gone past the red pill and realized everything is, is, is pointless like there, there is no winning you know we're all we're all doomed i'm like you know, re-interested
1: so. in the matrix right now i think it's like so funny um anyways
0: uh yeah but you know what read read baudrillard because uh oh, the matrix is i, like I
1: love the baudrillard train full baudrillard yeah yeah. Over here.
0: yeah yeah because um the the main thing the matrix gets wrong and the conceit of it is the idea that it's very easy to tell like, like once you're red-pilled it's very easy to tell when you're in the matrix and when you're not when the real nefariousness of it is that no one knows anymore when they're in the matrix or when they're not, because reality has become so fake, and fakeness has become so real. You know, we have video games that seem realer than real life, and we have president that seems like he's a cartoon. Like, like you never know when you're stepping out of the matrix into reality and vice versa anymore. And that's what the matrix didn't understand about are They made they took the conceit that once you realize that there's a matrix, then it's easy to jump in and out of it, and right that what, what's really tough about the matrix is once you realize there's a matrix you start realizing that you never know when you're in it and when you're not and that's way scarier and that's why bourgeois didn't uh like The Matrix. And we talk about that in the episode, too, where we talk about how people treat Harriet like it's Black Panther and they treat Black Panther like it's a historical documentary or biopic. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, yeah. No well, we need knows. to read
1: that Adolf Reed Feast together. I think it would be really fun. Um, yeah, when yeah. he talks I, I read about all these. I have um, to, but I couldn't remember it straight off the bat. I need to return.
0: What's the, what's the, what's the name of, uh? is Hold it the trouble, is the trouble with Uplift?
1: Yeah, that's one of them. I mean, he writes about like these history, like Black history movies, quite a bit but i think the trouble with uplift is one of the best
0: if you could finally remember some of the other ones we'll put it in the show notes I, I know he had one with Django and chain and the help and some other yeah ones, that's what i don't
1: remember if that's the trouble with uplift or that's a different one
0: he's gone to the well a couple of times on uh on that one so yeah i would definitely like to um talk about oh
1: this is like such an aside (laughs) no no it's
0: it's all it's all related uh here's Uh, here's another perfect example right mm -hmm. and we talked about this during the show but at the time of the show this Tweet. I didn't have it handy, or mm-hmm. it didn't come out yet. But I found this tweet after we did our episode, and it so ties into what happened in the show, right? But somebody wrote this about what happened in their cl- in the classroom regarding the movie Harriet, and there it was a history class with the history professor. Oh right, right. Person, you sent this to me. Yeah, the person wrote my black history, and he put history in italics. He put this on Twitter. He put my black history professor just walked in this class over slavery and said. He wants students to see the movie Harriet. Again, I say, all skinfolk ain't kinfolk. Because, you know, his, his professor was actually black, right? Right. So then, then he adds, Man's just used the argument that movies need to be entertaining when a student asks whether or not the movie is historically accurate. So, so a history professor asked them to um, watch this movie, Harry, which is like bacon superhero-y as fuck. <laughs> and when the student, the students were more concerned about historical accuracy than the actual history professor who was black. And his response was, well, don't worry. He didn't even say yes or no. He just said, well, movies need to be entertaining. You know, and it's like, uh, okay, the ma- the Matrix. When, when are we stepping into reality? When are we stepping into fantasy? And no one knows. So how do we even get on that? I don't
1: it, actually know, but it, it, it felt fun. I think I just made it like a matrix comment or something
0: yeah yeah we talked the matrix and the black pilling. yeah but <laughs> yeah but the black pilling is basically when you're like you know what fuck it there's no <laughs> point and, and, and that's when those incels go on those like suicide those murder suicide runs or or give up on ever having like like okay a red pill idea is okay i took the red pill i see what the reality is Night, being a nice guy sucks being an alpha male is the shit and being an <laughs> asshole so i'm going to learn all this pickup artistry stuff and i'm going to Jiu-jitsu. become a men's right activist and do all this stuff <laughs> yeah. and i'm going to master the system kind of like kind of Matrix put CDs in it hanio put CDs on a download into his brain and became a Kung Fu master like that that's a red pill that's so that funny. pill is like you know what fuck it there's no point I give up you know I'm either gonna take myself down or take a bunch of p- other people down and then take myself down or just opt out altogether and just you know not Isn't even this try is like men
1: always t- I like, Go, I like tweeted something and then yeah. someone commented like men who choose celibacy or something like that or men against yeah, yeah.
0: women yeah men, <laughs> men going their own Men going their own way. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, we talked about that. Like I feel all...
1: like I, I learned so much about this weird world on uh, Twitter.com. I would have never known of such a thing.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, crazy, it's crazy shit. It's crazy shit. But yeah, so I want to make sure we don't take far, too far off. Actually,
1: actually, well, no, so... I think it's pretty relevant. Because we, we do talk also in the, I mean, now we've been talking for 40 minutes, so this is basically its own thing. But in that other episode, we talk about, you know, the sexiness now, right? Like you have to, or there's this false desire, I think, really, to like stay sexy. To stay relevant, even when you get tenure, right? There's like this brand building. But I also I noticed something else recently, and maybe wasn't recently, but there's this obsession, especially in the humanities, where the only place this this kind of makes sense is there's an obsession with like a positivist turn, right? Like everything needs to be grounded in the facts or provable, which is kind of the opposite of what we're hearing with with the Harriet thing. But maybe it's it's more of like an avoidance of making an argument, right? So there is there is a intellectual effect, I think, of the job scarcity, right? And it's no one is making risk. Risky claims. For instance, Besner's article is considered risk, a risky claim. And it's like, what about that is risky? Who is being asked to take a risk? There's no risk. He's talking to other people with tenure. But even the arguments that you hear, I went, I went to see two talks recently by this like very prestigious guy who came and we gave him like the, the star treatment, Emery. And he didn't say, uh, he described like a, you know, kind of Wikipedia version of history. And then, you know, looked at some images. And I was like, this is the state of academia? That's but but, but but
0: you know, that happens, that happens a lot And you know, I don't want I'm trying to like, pick on people less Even though, <laughs> like, part of me thinks that When part of me having this world We don't call out people by name enough You know, but at the same time I don't wanna always just be calling out people by name, but in this case like I have to. Like there's some people like I see like someone like Roxanne Gay, like Mm -hmm. people act like she's speaking such truth to power with her brand of feminism, but then you look and she's just is the most make no waves kind of uh, person. But I think people kinda like the illusion pretending that they're making waves so people kind of listen to her act like they were inspired to do some kind of change when i mean all i've ever seen this woman do is write books about making it easier to be a feminist and, right. and like, like like her whole book bad feminist is about how you don't have to really do did anything you read to be it a hmm? you um, read it well, yeah oh my god go I, you well, you're
1: well, so like i'm the zeitgeist okay
0: well no well this is why i did it because uh. people kept holding her up to me as somebody who was so such a powerful like thinker I see her on twitter and she'd be just trying to get jobs on background movies or trying to get invited <laughs> to getting mad that marvel didn't invite her to the black panther uh, okay um premiere i mean, these are real things she said i'm not just being hyperbolic didn't invite her to the black panther premiere and she worked on um uh, Black Panther book and Whoa. she's always trying to get invited to places or get jobs. Or, mm. and, you know, she was talking one time about her parents paying her bills until she was very, like she's always my until God. she was very much older. And she's always tone deaf about a lot of stuff and lecturing like a McDonald's worker for giving her a gender specific Happy Meal.
1: Oh my God, I'm going to uh, have a heart attack. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, and not really <laughs> and, and buying the gender. And it's like a minimum wage McDonald's worker. They're not on Twitter trying to be woke. but She's always doing like a lot of, or, or she, she called out, she subtweeted somebody the other week or she top tweeted somebody the other week for you know writing her and asking for a reply and that person quote tweeted her on twitter outed themselves and says yeah that was me and as an editor if you, you know if you don't respond to a freelance writer within 30 days you know it's, it's normal to ask for what's going on like you know Mm. Uh, like stop making it sound like I'm just just harassing you needlessly like the girl <laughs> waited like 30 days but she's so like tone deaf about what it's like for regular people like you know a bad. freelance writer in a precarious existence you can't just sit around like and, and wait but just somebody who just always seems to be kind of beholden to power beholden to climbing beholden to striving and and even her feminism like bad because I want to be fair I didn't want to just bash someone just to bash them based on their tweets i wanted to see like I, I was thinking maybe her books will give me the elucidation or the radicalism that i'm not seeing in her twitter personality and it was just uh, essay-length versions of her tweets basically um <laughs> where she was talking about like the title bad feminism is that Hey, am I a bad feminism? Am I a bad feminist because I don't actually, you know, read any theory or know any names of feminists or do whatever? Let me think about it. Well, guess what? I've, I've decided, naturally, I'm not a bad feminist as long as I just I can go on Twitter and or Tumblr and you know do Buffy fanfiction and you know uh, have a good attitude (laughs) who is this like phantom
1: person calling her a bad feminist who cares I don't understand who is this person well I think this is what I think it
0: is I think it's kind of like preemptively disarming an argument like she knows that her feminism is kind of frivolous so she kind of you know what it's like you ever see 8 Mile
1: um I don't remember
0: okay 8 Mile Eminem Eminem, the final battle that Eminem does and it's something that like
1: Like a rap um, battle maybe I didn't see
0: this yeah Oh, oh my god you probably didn't see it uh, um it was, i like mean it's it's just, it, it's just rap battle rock. Okay. These, these days old
1: isn't that like 2004
0: oh my god just made me feel so damn old I <laughs> <it>. um, <laughs> no i mean i just like you
1: know didn't watch nothing you're
0: nor there uh because yeah, you don't understand the point instantly he has a rap battle and this guy uh he's not doing great in life and the person he's battling has is like the top guy in the battle rap world and what he does is he comes out and points out all his own criticisms in the rap beforehand so he does like he's like i know what you're probably gonna say he lives with his mom he does this he got cheated on with his girl blah, blah blah but you know i don't care but meanwhile you're blah 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 x y and z so it's like he brings up and then preemptively dismisses all the bad stuff the guy could have said about him so now he's free to not only talk about what he wants to talk about which is in this case all the other guys faults but he put it in the place where Now, if you try to criticize him about this stuff, he's disarmed the criticism, you know, and that's what I think the bad feminist thing was like, I don't know if anybody was specifically calling her a bad feminist, or she knew ahead of time, she's open to the criticism. But what she does is she says, Hey, some people will say, Oh, you don't know anything about second wave theory or no (laughs) feminist or the history, but you're calling yourself a feminist, you know, uh, sometimes I feel like I'm a bad feminist. But, hmm. hmm, am I really, you know, why can't you just read, like, feminist fan fiction or, <laughs> you know... Do this or be an average fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And why can't that be just as good a feminism as, you know, knowing all the theory and stuff like that? What happened, what happens with this, I think now okay. she's inoculated herself against that attack in the future. Cause now when someone says, you know, stop talking about feminism in this space, you don't know anything. Well, she's like, well, I didn't say I knew anything. And in fact, I don't know anything. And that's actually what makes me a better feminist. You know, didn't you read my book? You know, I think, um,
1: you, oh no, keep
0: going. Oh, no, but I'm gonna say to tie to tie it into what you were saying, you yeah. were talking about this person a superstar came to your school well well let me just back up and say this i realized why she was so popular was that she was giving people permission to be mediocre what i mean is like now all these white all <laughs> okay these i'll white, read her uh, 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 all these white uh, all these white wine moms you know mm-hmm. who are basically the npr version of what white midwest soccer moms are to oprah you know they have this black female sage who's giving so she's automatically more authentic you know giving hmm. them permission to you know be be mediocre so she's like, uh, wait, you know, Roxanne Gay, you know, and she's a black woman. She said, it's okay to, uh, you know, not read and whatever and call yourself feminist, you mm. know, or just, just lean in. And, you know, everything a woman does is, is feminist. Lean you in. Know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 So I so, think um, what the yeah. difference is, what I, what I wish, I mean, and I have no idea how this, oh, right. We were saying like, this is what's missing from the Academy. Right. So yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, care yeah, that yeah, Roxanne Gay. Yeah, no. You
0: gave the example, you gave the example, just so people know we're on topic, you gave <laughs> the example of that person who came to your school but he's supposed to be a superstar but he didn't really say anything challenging yeah. or whatever but it was accepted as being like great. I will yeah.
1: never forget Sorry, this talk. It was so infuriating <laughs> anyways. But like Roxanne Gay like sure whatever. Argue that you don't have to read but argue it right? I think I wouldn't care if Roxanne Gay was saying what she's saying which is kind of a nothing right? Like because no one's yeah. calling her a bad feminist you know the, the difference is, is she didn't take the risk right? She didn't just go out and say what she wanted to say. Her entire argument is bullying, is um sorry protecting herself from there being an argument against her, right? So what do you say to Roxanne Gay, right? If she's already kind of anticipated your issues, there's no... Uh, so, you know, you could say like, look, Roxanne Gay, um, what would be my argument against her? My argument against her is that there's no argument against her. She's just naming some facts about the world. Some people are feminists yeah, yeah, and don't yeah. read theory. Okay.
0: Yeah, yeah, I- exactly. There's not even anything to make a target out of. Like, I'm going to put this in the show notes, but there's a pretty good negative review of Bad Feminist by Lauren Euler and she wrote over at this site called Bookslut um, (laughs) by past and future guest, Jessa Crispin. And she talks about, you know, how uh, shallow the book is. But somebody responded to that bad review on Medium talking about how dare you snobby like you're being a snob for not liking bad feminism as in like the simplicity the facileness, the glibness of it is actually a strength you know it's kind of like for example mm-hmm. I was complaining about this guy Shea Serrano this sports writer that I discovered and he wrote a book about film and he's bragging about like he did the bad feminist of film he was like the bad film critic where he was bragging about not knowing anything about movies and not liking any movie before 1980 and mm-hmm. not liking all this stuff and then I was saying Why the hell are you writing a book on film criticism if you're basically discounting the whole field of film criticism? Like why are you holding up your lack of commitment your mediocrity as a selling point? And a lot of people got mad at me. He's like, he's just having fun. I don't care if he's having (laughs) fucking fun. Like, what the fuck is he having fun for? Uh he's writing a book, he's not writing a book called having fun, he's writing a book about film criticism. Like, you know, if the book is having fun, then by all means write about how you don't take stuff seriously but if you're writing a best-selling and it, it was like on the top of the new york times bestseller list and he was preemptively inoculating himself against all charges of mediocrity by mm-hmm. championing his own mediocrity as a strength and this person defending Roxanne gay was like you know she was criticizing Euler's criticism of Roxanne gay by you know saying um what i love about roxane Gay Except like, that I love her Twitter feed and what I love about Roxane Gay is her frank, no-nonsense diction and tone. You do not need a dictionary and a highlighter and several hours to <laughs> dissect and dilute lofty psychological and philosophical ideas when she's writing about race or class or gender. Mm-hmm. She communicates with a plain, direct urgency that demonstrates her feelings and does not alienate the reading, the reader. So basically, she's saying that I like that Roxane Gay adri- demonstrates her feelings you know, yeah. and also doesn't alienate me as a reader. you know, And she goes, her responses to pop culture are sarcastic and hilarious and her responses to tragic news are swift and piercing so basically she likes that she's sarcastic and hilarious about pop culture and that she responds to tragic news swift in the piercing way right and then uh mm-hmm. she asked that said i expected to love bad feminist and i did so so basically she what came in expecting to like it and it delivered them what she sure. wanted which is emotional stuff and emotional
1: then, stuff yeah
0: and she she goes and sarcasm and and feelings and she, she goes she opens the book with something like a disclaimer in regards to the tricky F word, the F word being uh feminism. And and this is the quote that the lady uh loved. She goes, In truth, feminism is flawed because it is a movement powered by people and people who are inherently flawed. So so okay. so feminism is flawed because it's a movement powered by people. Like and what people is are a move?
1: Like obviously everything's powered by people.
0: Yeah, everything is powered by people <laughs> talking talking by people. Like, this but, is like
1: but, no one made the decision. And it's like, Well, how are decisions made <laughs> by yeah, people? Exactly.
0: Did someone say feminism wasn't flawed? You yeah. Know, But for whatever reason, we hold feminism to an unreasonable standard where the movement must be everything we want and must always make the best choices. Uh, When feminism falls short of our expectations, we decide the problems with feminism rather than with the flawed people who act in the name of the movement. And this is like such a nothing burger because it's just basically... (laughs) I mean there's a hint of truth in it. Like there's a I understand the idea. Perfect is the enemy of good or good enough. And sometimes you have to expect people to be flawed. But her idea of people expecting uh perfection, yeah, you know, people expecting her to know basic feminist theory or basic feminist. Icons and their and what they what they believed, you know, and it's like okay, no that that's not fucking perfection. That's just the that's just the basics, like like you know, like so she took a germ of truth, which is hey, uh, sometimes people expect people to be too perfect and sure. take human fo- foibles and use it to take down a whole movement. But then her actual description of human foibles are not knowing anything about your topic beyond an amateur or a tourist, and mm-hmm. you know, being expected to know the basic fundamentals is like you're a professor and you're writing <laughs> books on feminism, like that's sure. <laughs> Yeah. That's not this, uh, this this unreasonable standard, you know, to, she, to put it, you know. I didn't realize and she then, was a professor. Yeah,
1: I believe she is. I mean I mean there are plenty yeah, of professors I, who make these kinds of arguments. This is this is actually the way right now of making an argument. And I would I was going to ask T you oh, no, actually keep going and then I I'll, then I'll ask.
0: Oh, oh but you know, I was going to ask you, you know, to go back to your point. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I think it ties into your point about, it does, uh, yeah. about about how this professor is treated as this like groundbreaking, mind-blowing thing, but all he's doing <laughs> is kind of catering to Mm -hmm. these people's desire to not have to rise above being mediocre. So they want an expert to validate mediocre thought. Yeah, yeah. I I think a lot of that was happening with Bestner's article too. Like people were kind of treating it like just these basic things were an unreasonable standard that that they're making such a big, he's making such a big demand. The same way uh, Roxanne Gay is acting like you're making such a big demand to ask feminists to know basic feminism. You're making such a big demand to ask uh, professors and the head of the history department to help people get jobs.
1: Right, I think... I think I think that's exactly right, right? Um, and I don't mean to harp on this Roxanne Gay point. I just think it's really interesting. Really quick, I was wondering because I don't actually like care if someone like you know if someone's mediocre. That's one thing, right? It's that if I can't call them out for missing something and, and call out. I don't even mean that in the negative sense. I mean, where's the dialogue if your entire argument is grounded and shrouded in your own feelings, right? So all that I, it sounds to me like Roxanne Gay and the movie critic guy are saying is like, I don't need to know anything and I'm just gonna like do my thing and it might sound shitty to you, but that's me. And it's like, okay, cool, cool, cool. Like that's just how everyone is actually, right? I only know my world of knowledge and I still have to make the argument. And what they're doing is like complete, like taking all risk out of it, right? Saying, yeah. Not just not only am I mediocre, which is like a very weird thing to say, okay, but fine. Live your live your truth. Well, to be fair, they're not using
0: the word yeah. mediocre, but, but what they're describing basically yeah. is basically uh mediocrity. Like they're making mediocrity sound like, you know, trying really hard mm. and they're making trying hard sound like unreasonable perfection standards.
1: I guess what I want to know is is if you would like cause I think that's right, but the, it also feels like something's missing um in that analysis of like what's kind of wrong there. And I wonder if you would say like, there is no argument against how you see yourself and your own history, right? If I write a book about that's basically like a diary of how I see myself as a feminist or an art historian. What's the like? Am I making an argument? And, wh- and what what would you point to that's wrong? Because I'm just telling you my view of things. Here's the well, difference, well, get, right? Is if yeah. I go and I and I just tell you what the movie is about, right? And I go, here's how I see the movie, or here's how I see feminism, and I think it should do this, this, and this, and uh, here's the history as I take it to have unfolded. And then like, okay, I've I've said something that actually can open up a dialogue rather than just be like this kind of navel-gazing, um, avoidant. I think it goes back to our, yeah, it goes back to our conversation about avoidance and acknowledgement, right? If I don't acknowledge history, if I don't acknowledge like what has happened, then I'm not responsible for it, right? And I can just talk about my view, right? I can talk about what ex- I see in the painting um, rather than what is ex- there.
0: Ex- exactly. And everything hmm. becomes like Latin, you know? Absolutely. You know, everything, like like my personal, writing, my journal, what does this <laughs> painting make me feel yeah. is as important as what did the, the author in 10 what was the context the author created that in what was the author what real life things was the author reacting to what was he speaking against what was Mm -hmm. he trying to get across versus what he might have gotten across right what what were the circumstances this was created in and there's a lot of this that happens online for example with this I'll be talking to people on Twitter and this is a weird thing where people have just made this the dominant frame and people act like it's some kind of accepted settled issue but you know like i will be talking about something and people were like well you know the author's dead and it's like what do you mean the author's dead because you don't know death of the author what the author says and it's like first of all fuck you that's why you believe, but don't act like it's a <laughs> settled issue. Like, like he, he was acting like I believe this. So he, he was like, So I was bringing up how, no, this is what the author intended and it doesn't succeed in achieving this. He goes, Well, yeah, but everyone knows the author is dead. It's like, No, that's not a settled issue. That's your <laughs> belief. You say, Well, I think the author is dead, not be like, Well, no, I think you're wrong. The author matters and what the author intends matters. But I think people want to believe that and not even challenge it and take it a subtle thought because when the author is dead, now my meanderings immune using are as important if not more important than doing the work and it's kind of like absolutely
1: the, the, oh my god i've never felt more confirmed in our friendship right now we totally agree on
0: this yeah 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 uh-huh. and because, because think about it: if the author is dead then also the historian is dead absolutely because, yeah because the historian well that's
1: great for mediocre historians isn't
0: it <laughs> yeah yeah exactly because the historian is one of the people who's going to tell you what the author was thinking like you're right. art, 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 as an art history person you're going to help preserve what the author or the artist was thinking in this piece what the context of what the piece was preserved in right and if the artist is dead then you as a historian what does it matter what you're doing and what does it mm. matter if the historian could tell his students like hey watch this fictional movie because it's entertaining and that's what you know it should be because who who cares
1: yeah absolutely i mean again it's about being wrong right if i if i argue what someone intended i of course can be wrong you don't know intentions in this kind of like perfect way like i can never like peek into your your head and know exactly what you intend but like we share a world and we share a language and I can like do my best and then I'm making an argument if I pretend uh what you did right in making your movie it doesn't matter at all then I never have to make an argument I never risk being wrong and it can be about my dad
0: yeah yeah and I never have to get out of my own head I never have to try to get into someone else's head which is what art is supposed to make you do it's supposed to help put you in someone else's head but now we judge art based on how well it gets into (laughs) our head and and confirms what we already believe which is what this one was doing with bad feminists. Like, you know, Right. she she didn't want the work to challenge her and force her to think like other people and see what about other people's thoughts do I want to assimilate, internalize, maybe challenge. You know, I, I reject what you think about this, but you make a good case about this. That's too much work. I just want confirmation bias and be told that I'm a special snowflake. And, and, <laughs> Absolutely. You know, yeah. 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 And same thing. I want this art to just kind of confirm. So, you know, like, like people go see a movie and be like, hey, this movie confirms my leftist this movie confirms my right wing view and that makes it a good movie and it's like wait the guy who did this movie is just a total idiot you mm-hmm. know? oh but it doesn't matter because that's the author it doesn't matter if he intended to make a <laughs> leftist movie whatever right you know, i saw a leftist movie unit so it's a great leftist movie i was i was like, just
1: talking about this last night when i saw i saw parasite to nights i mean this will yeah. take us into a whole different world but i was like I, I fell into this world of like okay what what does it mean to be a leftist movie like what did they intend did it succeed yeah. or fail right like yeah
0: and i think it's a valid mm-hmm. criticism and know people think historians are just reciters well they've become that history yeah they might become that but you know like a good historian is someone who doesn't even just take the records word for it so Mm -hmm. like the artist might say oh this is what i intended with the work and a good historian doesn't take that for face value they'll be like yes the author or the artist said this was what they intended but there's a lot of evidence you know that he might not have been honest or he might not been aware of what was really going on because there's a lot of clues in his life and his work and his themes that really show that he was motivated by uh, racism or Nazism mm-hmm. or whatever and so it's like people don't even want to take even the bare minimum of just reciting even what the author thought of their own work much less engaging and challenging and seeing if the author's thoughts about their own work really hold up to what he actually put on the canvas or the page and mm-hmm. and that lack of seriousness I think kind of translates to even uh, Bessner's article and how people mm-hmm. responded to it but it doesn't make us feel good. Mm-hmm. It's not what we want to hear it doesn't our view of ourselves yeah and why can't we make people feel better about themselves and stop being like, like now you're a party pooper for demanding anything out of anybody standard wise right I mean, that's, that's why best was being treated like the way that we can use how people react to art and movies and mm. whatever to this real life topic of labor kind of shows, again, how fantasy and people's real livelihood are treated like the same thing. Like
1: I think this is one of the best conversations I've ever had about labor because um, you're exactly right. I think people can say, like, that's not how I see it. You know, I didn't make these decisions. Um, there's there's no actor uh for who uh that the institution represents, and there's nothing we can do about it. What is that saying? It's like the world just happens, it's a, a series of emotions and feelings and, and relationships, and there's really nothing and we can do Things just happen
0: to us. Just yeah. happen to
1: us. Rather than saying, like we're, of, we're, we're responsible yeah. intentional agents. And we can, when you decide, right, that it's okay for exploitation to occur, like it, no, say you come out against like, like Bessner's article, right? Which is say like, you know, it just happens people are exploited. Well, I hope that you know that that's you saying I acknowledge what's happened and I'm ta- I'm making the intentional decision to do nothing about it. And they refuse to see that as an intentional decision.
0: Yes, systems are made of people and <laughs> people don't really understand that. Like, like you know, systems just so not spontaneously um, arise and it's like the same bit as a death of author or death of artists in the art. Like there's a death of an actor in systems now. Mm-hmm. Like, systems are just these things that are just their own thing. and you know the the same way the intentionality of the author or what the author did the artist doesn't matter all the different people involved either uh creating or enabling like these rules or turning a blind eye or whatever are just kind of treated like you know they don't they don't exist it's kind of like how there's all this talk in academia or in um or in race writing about racism, racism, mm-hmm. racism. But it's like, okay, how can we have so much racism or racist systems, but so few actual racists? Mm. Like you have to pull teeth and have the most undeniable proof and have somebody outright use slurs. And even then people make excuses about why the person, <laughs> are we sure we want to call them a racist? Like right. Yeah, um, Yeah, crazy. There's there's even a book about it called Racism Without Racists and how Mm. we're so willing to see racism everywhere, but so few racists, you know, and I think it's, that same mindset, it's the same mindset as death of the author, same mindset of death of the bad faith AHA actor, you know, who's not helping students get jobs. its, it's-
1: I mean, not to put words in Adolf Fried's mouth, but it kind of seems like this is what he's saying, right? Like, you know, we, if we talk about racism without pointing to a solution that's like actionable and possible, then we're just talking about uh, a nothing, no agent kind of like specter that keeps us from taking responsibility for this, these problems, these exploitative uh, racist issues that we see in this world, right? It's the difference between talking about gentrification and talking about, you know, putting forth, you know, actionable, possible laws that protect someone's rights as a renter and protect their, what is it called? Um, uh, rent protection? What is it called?
0: Rent control. Rent, rent control.
1: Yeah, yeah. Rent control.
0: Yeah. Well, 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 you know, this is my, so my house
1: cleaning not... housekeeping.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Extra yeah, house cleaning housekeeping moment. You know what's yeah. where the Adolf Reed, though? See, I'm not sure. I think he might go in the opposite direction where he talks about systems so much that mm-hmm. he makes speaking about individual actors almost like irrelevant whereas i think a lot of these these bourgeois anti-racist types just focus on individual actors and interpersonal stuff to the neglect of talking about systems and okay, i'm not, I I see. not sure I'm not, saying I'm not sure either approach is right although i do think if you had to choose one bad approach the adolf reed approach of keeping your eye on systems is ultimately the better one but i think even adolf reed sometimes falls into the trap of being so focused on systems that, you know, we don't really talk about the individual racist sure. enough like call them out enough but, but I think mean, it's a,
1: he's, he's doing the same thing that we were kind of talking about earlier which is like the institution doesn't itself make decisions there are people who are responsible for those decisions so there yeah. are the racist exploitative people they're uh, they're cl- they're uh, protected by institutions and that's why we need to make those institutions and change the laws so that they protect people from things like exploitative racism or exploitative sexism whatever My f-
0: yeah but I just want to end
1: yeah sorry that was
0: so fun but yeah yeah it's to be a prologue it ended up becoming like his own episode <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think uh we had like, a lot of fun yeah but in in finality what are grad students uh, what are grad unions involvement in all this is and how does the nlrb decision come into play and and Thanks. what you need people what is your ask of people who are listening to this like like what is your ask of them
1: yeah thank you um i you know there are a lot of ways that graduate workers are implicated in this exploitative system, right? And I could probably talk for another hour on it, but I'll, I'll keep it really simple, right? Professors, uh, institutions continue to accept graduate students into their programs. And I, I don't think we should stop accepting graduate students into our programs, but they're accepting graduate students into their programs knowing that they are very unlikely, it's like less than 50% of the humanities, to get a tenure track job. And we do speak about this a bit in the longer uh, conversation with Daniel. Um, and Andre. But what I think graduate union, the reason that graduate unions I think are really on the rise, right, is they go. We see what this is, what's happening. We see that our bosses actually don't care that we um, are not guaranteed jobs, or and there's not even like a- it's not even more than likely that we're going to get a job. It's uh, it's very likely that we won't, um, and we want to change how our institutions look and function, and put. People like the people who are going to be implicated in this mess, graduate workers and adjunct workers, in charge of the spaces that they're working, right? This is like a classic leftist move, right? You go, I'm the one who's going to suffer this. I don't think I have to suffer this. Let's join, let's um, start a union, make our voices heard, and reverse this seemingly. Um, unstoppable train of exploitation. And we go, no, we can turn this train around. Um, So I was just on the phone with SEIU at Service Employees International Union two or three days ago. And I said, look, our new plan needs to be that we hold not just professors, Um, responsible, but the entire bureaucratic system that runs these institutions and say, you actually are 100% responsible and obligated to find each and every graduate student you admit who wants a tenure track job, you are responsible for getting them a tenure track job, a well-paying, good tenure track job. I think just making that our ask, which, you know, even the people at us were like, that's not reasonable. And I go, I don't care (laughs) if it's reasonable. That's what we have to ask. And it's what we have to demand.
0: And I, I, I just uh, that, just was say like real quick, if something is not reasonable, then let's find out by trying our best for it. <laughs> Absolutely, and failing, you know, Cause, yeah. Because if, if if it's not reasonable, then what do you have to lose? Worst case, you'll try and you'll fail. It's kind of like or you'll says, get
1: it, make things a little bit better, and not, but like,
0: y- yeah, that shouldn't be yeah, your goal. Exactly.
1: That's crazy. Y- y- yeah, y-
0: yeah. But the way you should find out yeah. if it's unreasonable or not is by trying for it with your all mm-hmm. and and failing, and that's how
1: you know. Amen. I 100 percent there with you. And- And it sucks. I'm about to leave graduate school. And I I think this is, um, you know, I probably won't get a tenure track job. I mean, cross my fingers. Anyone listening who wants to give me one, I'm totally down. It like hurts my
0: whole. (laughs) How great would it be? How great would it be for work that way? (laughs) You you, you can ask on podcast. This is genuinely what my mom
1: thinks. Like my, my mom's like, you just need to make enough connections. And I'm like. I mean, okay, but like, I don't think even these people have any power. Um, And this actually, the guy that came to visit and gave a talk, he was like, you know, I just met someone and he gave me a job at like Johns Hopkins or wherever, the Yale or whatever he went was working. And I was like, wow, if that was really a thing, that would be absolutely bananas. So anyways, you asked about the NLRB. So the NLRB recently over returned a decision um, in 2016. The Columbia decision, which said graduate students or graduate workers at um, private universities are workers um, and can unionize. Um, the Trumps, NLRB, recently overturned that decision, not by overturning a precedent. So not overturning it because Emory went to, be, uh, went to the NLRB and asking to be a union because we had across the country decided no one was going to do that. But they instead passed a rule. Okay, And rules are uh, a lot harder to overturn. And so one thing that we're doing right now and that I ask all of your listeners to do is to kind of just, I mean, T will put um, something in the in the show notes, but you can really just Google. A, 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 mm-hmm. And
0: this won't be in the patient only show notes. I'll put this in the general. Oh, thank you. Um, everyone, every, everyone could read show notes because I want a lot of people to see this.
1: I'll give him ones that, that have this instruction. So basically, we want to like kind of overwhelm the NLRB with comments, not just from graduate students, not just from professors, not just from people at the university, but people across the country who you know, say, look, graduate students are workers um, um, for X y, and re- Z- X, y, and Z reasons. Um, they're workers because they do work. I mean, it's it's honestly like laughable how, how easy it is to make this argument. Um, but if you send in these comments, then we can slow down the decision, hopefully until 2020, um, so that we can protect the unions across this country who have put in so much work to be recognized, who have done all this organizing, and who deserve to have protected workplaces. And also, you know, places like Emory, our ultimate goal, right, is to get enough people on board that we can go to the NLRB and negotiate our own contract. So that would, you know, could be really helpful. Again, the the link that um, T will have for you, there are like really specific instructions. They take like two seconds to read and writing a comment can take as long or as short as you want it to. So it would be okay. mean a lot. <laughs>
0: Great, great. So definitely, uh, either do the Google search or great right. Google check, search check uh, NLRB
1: grad workers uh, unions, and something will come up.
0: Great, and. This was meant to be just a quick prologue for the episode. <laughs> it ended up becoming an episode in its own right, but I'm going to leave it the way it is. I think it's fine. So just to just listen to this. And also, I, I think uh, you didn't get to talk that much during the other episode. So this is kind of mm. nice, because it makes the other one kind of... You have no memory dead. of what I said
1: or didn't say.
0: What's, the, what's that?
1: I have no memory of what I said or didn't say. I, like, you're not a morning person, and I'm like, whatever the opposite of a night person is. <laughs> yes,
0: yeah, so, because I think it was in the evening. You were kind of checked out. The oh, evening. absolutely, so this, yeah. So, so this kind of this works out Mm -hmm. so so this ends up being your episode and the other one ends up being more of daniel's but yeah thanks for joining me and giving that extra context and yeah jump into the next episode and listen to it with daniel and andre joining us
1: well thanks for having me t i hope you have a great day all
0: right you too take care all right y'all so that is the end of part one Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash Champagne Sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.